Hey guys, it's a little bit off schedule, uh, but we had a chance to get some time with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, talk about his new prescription drug plan. I, I never say no to presidential campaigns uh, if they want to talk deep in the weeds instead of headline stuff. Uh, so we went really deep on prescription drug pricing, on uh, manufacturing, on uh, Daryl Morey and uh, the Houston Rockets, all the important healthcare topics that are out there. I, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got a special guest today, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, a presidential candidate. People probably know who he is, unlike uh, the last time he was on this show some months ago. Uh, welcome, Mayor. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you again. <laughs> um, so you wanted to talk about uh, your new prescription drug plan, uh, which is which is out this morning. Uh, this is an issue, um, you know, this is like every voter says this is incredibly important to them, even if it's not in the headlines all the time. Um and uh, so, you know, I guess to start out, the the centerpiece of this really is to say that the government should negotiate prices in Medicare and then make the fruits of that negotiation available to essentially every patient and every health plan everywhere. Is that right? That's right. Uh, we believe not only should we allow Medicare to negotiate, which I think most Americans support and it's hard in principle to argue against, and yet it hasn't happened, but also when we have those negotiations going on to find ways to make uh, that benefit available to other plans, especially since our vision contemplates there being other plans out there. Uh, we want to make sure that, that we're dealing with affordability across the board. You know, part of what motivated me to release this plan is uh, as important as the coverage debate is, how you're getting your care, Medicare for all who want it versus Medicare for all versus uh, adjusting the ACA. Uh, it feels like the conversation about affordability is being left behind. And yet I meet so many people, including people who have insurance, uh, who are just getting killed by the outright cost of uh, care and in particular prescription drugs. And so I believe we need to take that on directly alongside the debate that we're having over how to make sure everybody gets covered. Right. And so part of this plan is to change sort of what benefits I mean, people have Medicare, lots of people, uh, they're paying a lot for prescription drugs. And you want to both reduce the price that the government pays to pharmaceutical companies, but also limit the out-of-pocket costs for Medicare recipients. That's right. You know, a big issue is out-of-pocket costs. And we not only propose capping them, but one of the things I've noticed talking to voters and, and for that matter, friends and folks in the community is that a lot of people uh, are experiencing both income and uh, costs on a monthly basis, not uh, yearly. Or you get into these tough situations where people are kind of watching month by month to try to figure out whether their costs are going to rise past some kind of yearly uh, uh, cap. And so we right. also thought it was important that when we do a cap on out-of-pocket costs that we set it up monthly uh, so that it, it actually reflects better the experiences that uh, uh, that people have in figuring out how to pay for this stuff. And so, but part of how you're going to be able to cap those costs is by reducing the sort of the underlying price that's that's paid through negotiation. And can you walk us through like how does that how does that work? You're you're president. You have a HHS secretary. Pharmaceutical companies say, "Hey, we've got this great medicine. Here's what we want for it." What happens? Yeah. So what we envision is a process where uh, you know factors are taken into account to make sure that uh, there's an appropriate price being set, uh, we would uh, begin by focusing on uh, kind of a minimum number of drugs that we think most urgently need 
negotiation and uh, and go from there. Uh, but we also want to make sure that HHS is empowered to conduct these negotiations on a broader and broader basis. Now, that's not the only thing that we have to do in order to address costs. So uh, we also think it's important to establish guardrails on drug price inflation. And uh, part of how you can do that is set up a penalty that would kick in when you have unjustifiable increases. Uh, because a lot of what we've seen is a drug that came to market at a reasonable price only to see the the price uh, jacked up. But we saw the example of the uh, EpiPen, which I think increased 800%. And it's hard to argue that a price increase like that is needed in order to support innovation. After all, uh, the, the drug was delivered to market at a certain price. Uh, it, it really, at that point, has crossed the line into gouging, and we need to make sure that there are guardrails on that. So does the legislative tool to do that exist already in your view, or is this something that, you know, it has to pass Congress as part of a, a bigger package of, of healthcare reforms? You know, following what's going on right now in the House, I think this does need to have legislative authorities. Uh, the last thing we want to do, I mean, even on something that had strong legislative authorities like the ACA, we still see all the ways that it's been undermined by the current administration. I want to make sure on this issue and across the board that we're, whenever possible, implementing legislation that gives it uh, longevity instead of uh, being vulnerable to the whim of one administration after another. Right. So, but when when the negotiations happen, you're talking about going sort of, you know, drug by drug in, in some set of priorities through it. Uh, but like how, I mean, how do you decide how much to pay? The, the government is, is such a big purchaser. I mean, do you just sort of set terms, strike it, you know, super, I mean, it's cheap to manufacture a pill. Uh, so in theory, the prices could be extraordinarily low. Yeah, uh, but I don't think you set it on marginal costs. Look, we respect the principle that uh, pharmaceutical companies take risks, they do research, they innovate. Uh, lots of what they do winds up as a dead end in order to get to something that succeeds. And that needs to be factored in. But what we know is that they're, they're at the macro level. There's clearly a market failure here. If uh, we, we have an industry that exists in order to provide life-saving medicines. Uh, some people who need it in order to live don't get it. And we're seeing runaway profits. If, if all of those things are happening at the same time, uh, it suggests that there's got to be an intervention. And so, uh, of course, there will be a lot of challenges in making sure that we have the right kind of left and right boundaries that allow for the fact we're not trying to uh, price it at the marginal cost of producing a pill. Eventually that happens when something goes generic and, and that's fine. Uh, but we do know that where we are right now does not adequately reflect what is required, both uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that we can make international comparisons and see how much worse off Americans are, uh, and by looking at how much is being sucked out and uh, spent not on uh, uh, R&D, but on uh, lobbying to defend a huge surplus and, of course, uh, the runaway profits themselves. So uh, on the international comparisons, right, uh, this is classic point, uh, foreign countries pay much lower for prescription drugs. One thing uh, I've sometimes heard from, you know, people affiliated with, with the industry or sympathetic to is that in a sense, those countries have been free riding on the U.S. market, which subsidizes the research and development of these kinds of drugs. And do you worry that, that if the U.S. gets in on that action, that you kind of like you kill the goose here, that th these drugs, you know, th the reason people care so much is that the drugs are actually quite valuable and we need them to be developed. Well, that's one reason why I don't rely on the idea of importation or uh, reference pricing as much as some of the others do. I think that uh, comparing international prices is something you could take account in, uh, especially when you're figuring out, uh, you know, some of the elements that go into the formula for the negotiation. 
But uh, I do think that uh, there's something to that, this, this idea that, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the innovation is happening here. We want it to stay that way. And I believe that we can have innovation without uh, millions of patients being miserable. There's just something wrong with the business model uh, if, if they say that they can only innovate and only be profitable if this kind of misery continues. Uh, I think there's a way to do that. There has to be a way to do this if, if it's worth having this industry at all. And so you do have some some ideas in this proposal about trying to sort of boost research in, in certain areas. Uh, I got to say, I, I'm reading through it. There's a lot of uh, references combating antibiotic resistance bacteria program, Army Futures Command uh, stuff. Uh, I'll admit I, I'm not super familiar with, with what these agencies and, and programs are. Yeah, look, uh, the federal government has always uh, played in the public sector, have played an important role in innovation. I don't want to short what's going on in the private sector, but uh, a lot of the basic research and a lot of the support for research and innovation actually happens through activities that are supported by the American taxpayer. And so, uh, you know, one analogy I, I would have is uh, you think about a, a multi-billion dollar invention like the iPhone. Only the uh, private sector could create something like that. Uh, but then you have a multi-trillion dollar invention like the internet itself. Well, that came out of the public sector. Uh, and you couldn't have one without the other. Uh, when you look at what happens in NIH, CDC, a lot of DOD-driven spending and other areas, there's no question that there's an important role for the public to play in driving innovation. I think that's something that we need to bear in mind, both when we're setting policies uh, outside of the illusion that it's only coming from the industry, but also in making sure we're supporting the industry which with the kind of research and support upstream that, that helps fuel, drive, encourage, and reward the innovation that we expect of them. And, and I mean, what do we need there, though? Are you saying basically like more money for the existing research channels or does something need to change in terms of how it works? Because my understanding is that actually new drug discoveries have been slowing down in, in recent years, even as we've had all these concerns about costs. Well, a lot of that, I think, has to do with the industry getting more and more sophisticated about pursuing discoveries that will maximize profit, which is not always the same thing as pursuing the discoveries that will make the biggest difference. It can be, but, mm -hmm. but it isn't always. And so uh, some of this is simply a question of funding, but I think we also need to demonstrate our willingness to support uh, policy design that's going to continue to drive those kinds of innovation. And uh, we shouldn't be afraid to uh, get uh, the public sector involved in a lot of these activities, as indeed we do in ways that don't always uh, get a lot of attention or a lot of credit. Right. And so when you talk about the, the, the worst offenders in terms of uh, egregious pricing and, and what you want to do there, uh, what, what does that mean? How do you know who, who the worst offenders are? Well, this is part of what goes into the decision making for both negotiation purposes and for uh, some of the more severe penalties that should be out there. So uh, a good example or indication of that is when you see uh, an explosion in the price of something that is not driven by any kind of increase in the cost of delivering it, uh, then you have to look at what's driving it. And if what's driving it is the desperation of patients who have no choice, uh, then we are in a gouging situation. I think also we'll be able to identify when private players are not coming to the negotiating table in good faith, and there has to be a recourse to that. Look, if uh, if something increases the uh, challenge of being able to deliver a drug to market if there is a, a supply shortage or uh, something related to a natural disaster or conflict. That can happen. Outside of that, I think what we often see now is uh, behavior that uh, will be in the interest of a company as long as there's not a guardrail to tell them they can't do it. 
which is uh, jacking up the prices on important and life-saving drugs simply because they can. Right. So you're talking about cases we've seen. I mean, we've seen with insulin, we've seen with EpiPens, we've seen uh, famously with, with Martin Squarely. This is sort of companies uh, take products that have existed for a while and they, then they're sort of like testing the waters, right? Like how much higher can can we put this up? And and you think that kind of practice doesn't doesn't serve to to bolster innovation? Well, look, the, the whole uh, justification for uh, the the profits that are made is that they're they're needed in, in part of this ecosystem that drives innovation. Uh, if you're just getting your hands on something that was already created and making it harder to get and then becoming, uh, you know, driving huge uh, windfalls by that fact, it's got nothing to do with innovation. On the contrary, it is uh, it is classic uh, rent seeking in a way that is, uh, you know, has an economic as well as a, a human cost and it oh. is something that we need to jump in on. So some people think that in those most egregious cases, the government can step in uh, with some existing legislation with the Bayh-Dole Act and other things and basically just like override the the patents that exist. Are, are you on board with that idea? Is that is that your reading of the situation? Yes, as a last resort. I don't think that it's something you would hope never to have to do. But I think it's important to state that this uh, needs to be on the table, because when you see uh, you know, it's one thing to have a company doing what companies do and, and and trying to succeed in the marketplace. It's another when you get to the point where there is an outright abuse, and especially when lives are on the line, when this effectively amounts to a health emergency uh, that is uh, is entirely man-made. So uh, this is not something to be done lightly. I would uh, view it as something you would hope never to have to do, but I think it needs to be contemplated as a reminder that the only reason we have patent law or any law is to cure, secure benefits to the American people. So something I think a lot of people experience when they hear about these prescription drug ideas is cynicism, right? And and one reason for that is I, I remember when I first graduated college, first came to Washington, was first covering uh, prescription drug debate in 2003, Democrats were saying we should be negotiating these prices. Medicare should be negotiating these prices. And they, they said it for years. And then when Democrats took over in 2009, they passed this big health care bill and then they didn't do that. Right. And in fact, it, it turned out the Obama administration had made some kind of deal with the pharmaceutical industry, promising that they, that they weren't going to do it. Um, and then a few years later, sort of come back to the well, say, oh, you know, we got to we got to renegotiate prices. And now I know uh, obviously that wasn't you personally, uh, but like what what do you do about people who feel like they've been hearing elected officials, politicians, candidates talking about this for decades and, and nobody actually does it? This is part of why I'm running. I think on this issue, on a lot of issues from guns to immigration to climate, uh, we've heard all kinds of elegant plans and uh, popular uh, positions staked out. And, you know, any one of these plans, its value gets multiplied by zero, no matter how elegant it is, if, uh, if it doesn't actually get done, if, if nothing happens. And I think we have accepted the unacceptable, largely because we're in this political environment where it's possible for the American majority to want something to happen. And yet it come nowhere close to a majority of the American Congress. One of the areas where uh, this is a, a bit like universal background checks in, in the sense that uh, this is not only a widely popular and good policy when you think about something like negotiations. It's a widely popular and good policy that doesn't cost a lot of money. In fact, in this case, it would most likely save the Treasury quite a bit of money and still doesn't get done. That reveals that there is something profoundly broken in our democratic system. I think uh, a campaign 
like mine would arrive in the White House with a mandate to deal with that. Uh, but it's also why I think there are a lot of prior questions about democratic reform that are at the heart of my campaign, uh, because if we don't have better drawn districts and a different role of money in politics, we're going to continue to see outcomes in Washington that do not reflect what most people want. So how, how does this then relate to the sort of broader idea of, of Medicare for all who want it that, that you've put on the table? Because, you know, as you say, right, if you just take the negotiation sort of as a unitary idea, it's like it saves money. It's very popular. seems like one thing to push it. But when you tie it in to like a whole broader health reform, then you necessarily you have a much more complicated kind of conversation. Would you consider breaking this out as a, as a separate idea that you try to push Congress on? Well, I'm releasing it as a separate idea because I think it's so important to have a, a debate about affordability and about prescription drugs and recognize that uh, dealing with uh, getting everybody coverage is uh, very important, but it's it's neither necessary nor sufficient to attack the affordability issue. Uh, that said, I do think that that these things go hand in hand. I think some of my competitors basically uh, assume some of these problems away by assuming that uh, the private health insurance industry doesn't exist in four years. Uh, I think that a, a plan like mine that expects that there will continue to be a private sector uh, has that much more of an obligation to explain how that's supposed to work uh, toward affordability. And, and that's what we're seeking to do with these measures. And so this is, in case people aren't familiar with it, uh, the, the private sector continues to exist because you're proposing essentially to create a, a public plan, a sort of Medicare that everyone is eligible for, but not everyone would actually use. Right. I, that's why we call it Medicare for all who want it. You take a version of Medicare and you make it available affordably for everybody to participate in. And then we're going to see how many people opt into it. Now, uh, I actually think it will be better than just about every plan out there. But this doesn't command you to adopt it. If you prefer the plan that you've got, I'm, I'm thinking especially about uh, a lot of union members who have negotiated attractive plans that are made available through a private provider that really is part of their compensation. Often they made a concession on wages to get that health plan. Uh, then I don't want to order them to abandon it in order to get on the public plan I'm creating. And the, the beauty of this is there, there's a certain humility built into the policy design that says, we think it'll be better. And if we're right, uh, everybody will want it and eventually we'll be in a single payer environment. But if we're not, mm -hmm. then we're going to be really glad we didn't force it on everybody. And uh, uh, this leaves the question of whether and when the private sector is competed away in the uh, when it comes to the insurance market. It leaves that question up to the American people instead of uh, believing or, or hoping that Washington can correctly guess what the right answer is and how long it'll take. So that's sort of what, why you think this, this plan is superior to, I guess, the, the more left-wing ideas. And then what, what makes this better than a sort of a, a more cautious approach that's just focused on kind of shoring up the Affordable Care Act as it exists? Well, as important as the Affordable Care Act is, we've clearly found its limitations, not only the ways it can be undermined, uh, as is happening now, uh, even with uh, an administration and, and a Congress that uh, didn't uh, kill it outright when they had the chance. Uh, but also, I'm meeting so many people who are just getting killed by cost in some way, or they're still uninsured somehow, or they're insured, but they're underinsured. Uh, and with that happening, it's clear that we've got to go further than just polishing the ACA. And I guess the other difference is that uh, if this is, in fact, going to lead to a single-payer environment, uh, that's fine. It's just that that's not the principle at stake to me. The principle for me is not ensuring that the government be the provider. 
or for that matter, ensuring that uh, the private sector be a provider. It's ensuring that everybody gets coverage in a way that is neutral to who's providing it, so long as everybody's actually cared for. All right, shift gears a little bit. An interesting topic this plan, uh, prescription drug plan raised, that I think a lot of people haven't heard that much about is the actual manufacturing of the prescription drugs, uh, which, like a lot of industries, uh, a lot of that is happening in in China now. um, and, And you say that's a national security risk. Yeah, I am concerned with uh, some of the dependencies. I mean, this goes to a bigger uh, set of questions around our relationship with a country like China. You know, on, on some level, I think it's foolish. Obviously, I believe the the trade war is foolish and, and trying to just put up new walls is, uh, is counterproductive. But I do think we need to be smarter, uh, not just about how much we're trading, but what we're trading. It's something I think we need to be very watchful of when it comes to the interdependencies in our electronic and IT systems with China. And I think the same is also true when it comes to uh, the relationship between our medical supply uh, and what's happening in China. And we should be able to uh, decouple or at least uh, carefully monitor uh, dependencies that have security implications in a different way than uh, uh, you know a, a more routine trade relationship over dishwashers or something like that. Well, so, I mean, something about that, right? I mean, security dependencies is in existing uh, law. I, what's interesting here is the idea of seeing prescription drugs as part of that sort of sensitive security apparatus, right? And so, and this would be a a different kind of, of trade tension with, with China than what we've seen from President Trump, right? Essentially to expand the circle of industries that, that you're saying need national security protection and I mean, probably the Chinese would have something to say about that uh, in terms of our exports to them. The biggest difference with the Trump administration is when we invoke or uh, discuss national security in the context of the trade relationship, it's actually related to national security. I mean, you know, Trump invoked national security for uh, uh, taking steps with respect to Canada, which which is obviously a, a BS excuse. But right, he's, he's protecting us from Canadian aluminum. Yeah, really, really worried about, uh, you know, the, the national security threat posed by Canada. Uh, and in the meantime, I, th- I think less attentive to what's going on for all the tough talk with China uh, and, and his willingness to uh, sell out American farmers, for example, in order to have the theatrics of a trade war on, on things like soybeans. Uh, we're, uh, we're not paying attention to the things that really are concerns. Look, I'm, I'm more concerned about the China challenge than maybe uh, most uh, folks have been in, in my party, because I think this is going to be uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, security uh, competitors and challenges, not to say adversaries. Uh, over the course of my lifetime. And uh, we just need to make sure we're smart about things that could be weaponized, even if, uh, uh, you know, we're thinking short of a nightmare horror story scenario, just the the leverage that I would prefer China not have, especially if we're going to uh, have the foreign policy that I propose that takes much more seriously the democratic aspirations of the people of Hong Kong or the religious freedom of the Uyghur Muslims or any other area where this president appears willing to back down from offering even tepid nominal moral support, uh, largely because he seems to be concerned about implications in other areas. Well, so what did you think? I mean, it's it's obvious to see sort of how prescription drugs could be a, a national security leverage point. Uh, but, you know, you brought up Hong Kong. And an interesting thing, you know, we've seen in the past couple of days is like NBA basketball being seen as a, as a leverage point. And now American companies like you know, cracking down on the general manager of, of the Houston Rockets for for speaking out on, on Hong Kong. So how do you how do you kind of like draw the line to say, well, which are the sensitive industries and what's just commerce as usual? 
Well, I think we start by saying, okay, if, if there is a, a restriction, especially a, a restriction motivated by security or, uh, or some kind of international geopolitical issue, uh, how much harm can it bring? And, uh, you know, as much as we love basketball, I think we're thinking about something very different when uh, it's life-saving medication or uh, critical infrastructure in the cyber field. But I mean, is there a, a like a strict criteria that tells us like, you know, what what separates like critical medicine from, I don't know, less critical medicine, anything like that? I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to say, like, what's what's the what's the principal basis here on which we're going to draw these distinctions? Well, I mean, one way to think about it is, you know, in a worst case scenario where there's an abrupt shock, uh, are people going to die? That, that would be a, a simple line to use as a, as a starting point and separates the basketball example from the prescription drug example. Right. And, and medication certainly kind of kind of reach that. So how do you think about the prescription drug industry? Right. I mean, one thing that's very striking, I think, to a lot of people, they listen to, to Bernie Sanders talk about this topic and so many others in a kind of a strong moralistic language. Right. He, he is against the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you, I think, seem like a more uh, more technocratically minded person, have a have a more measured take. But so like what's your what's your view of of the industry? Are they are they doing good work? Are they killing people with their greed? Both. Uh, they are doing good work and they are killing people with their greed. And the way we need to regulate and the way we need to set policy is to recognize that uh, behavior is going to be based on what we allow and what we encourage. And, uh, you know, in industry after industry, there's this desire for kind of black and white hero and villain picture. Uh, the reality is people and also companies are capable of good and bad things. Right now, we have a setup that is way too permissive uh, for them to do bad things. And, uh, almost dares them to do bad things because uh, uh, the more you do, the more profitable you can become. We can change that. We can settle the moral questions through our democracy so that the industry is focused on narrower questions of how to produce and deliver things that Americans need. And I guess that's my approach to regulating industry. It's not made of people who are all good or all evil, but if people can get away with doing bad things, then they're going to uh, often going to keep at it. That's the nature of human beings, and that's why we have laws. All right, Mayor, uh, people are flashing fingers at me saying I should I should try to wrap it up here. But I, I do like to ask guests, uh, but, but before they leave, uh, is there anything I, I should have asked you here? What what did you want to talk about that, that I didn't bring up? Uh, parting thoughts? Uh, well, as always, we covered a lot of ground there. So I'm not sure I'd uh, uh, say you missed <laughs> anything important. Took me a couple places I didn't think I'd go. Uh, but uh, what I will say is that I hope we can continue to uh, discuss health without it all coming down to coverage. I think coverage is really important. I think my Medicare for all who want it plan uh, is a central symbol of the difference between my approach and, and some of the others who have a more command and control vision and is an example of how we can be bold and unifying at the same time. But having said that, uh, when we're talking about health, we've also got to talk about affordability. We've got to talk about provider shortages. We've got to talk about drugs like we're talking about today. We've got to talk about mental health and addiction a lot more than we have been. And I hope that this uh, uh, is an opportunity to make sure the debate doesn't only get uh, reduced uh, to the question, even though it's a very important one, of uh, who's got the best uh, plan for getting everybody insured, which is me, of course. Okay, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who's listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will be back on Friday.